Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I grew up going to this mall. This is a mall that has a fantasy fair in it. Immediately, through the facade of the windows, you see a carousel, a Ferris wheel. And I used to get lost in the jungle gym. You can hear the roller coaster going right over our heads right now. That's REA Bookbinder, and he's standing in the Woodbine Centre Fantasy Fair Mall in Toronto. I'd like to lead you up the stairs or the escalator here, and we'll ascend into a dream world. There's so much to see here. From the ceiling, you have these animatronic figures that are hanging. Uh, You've got like a Wright Brothers early airplane type figure. You've got a T-Rex over here. Its arms, its little arms are moving. The Ferris wheel, of course, covers two floors of the front facade of the mall. You can still see it. All around it, they've got this kind of faux village full of retail and uh, confectionery businesses. Uh, Like you've got the Subway, you've got a Tim Hortons. There used to be a very famous McDonald's here. It closed. And when McDonald's closes, you know you're in trouble. REA Bookbinder leads the Dead Malls Tour, taking people to shopping centers built in the 70s and 80s that have had few updates since. He said it's like time travel, but that many of these malls won't be around much longer. It was once something that had a lot of livelihood to it. You would come here knowing that you would run into people that matter to you. I would run into my grandparents and my cousins at the mall. You go to a mall like this in the state it's in today, and unfortunately you see that something at the center of the mall has collapsed. The anchor stores have left. And with that, a lot of the other tenants have left because a lot of the volume to these shopping centers has left. You'll see a lot of empty units, a lot of infrastructure that's outdated, um, but that's part of the beauty of it and that's part of the uh, fascination is it's in a transitory state. We know that it's at the tail end of its existence. It's like a caterpillar that's forming a cocoon. It's going to come out a butterfly. But in order to do that, it has to die. Dead malls still dot suburban landscapes, but a new kind of mall is emerging. If you brave the holiday shopping mobs this month, you might notice some changes at your local mall. Shauna Braille is an associate professor and director at University of Toronto's Institute for Management and Innovation, and she's with me in our Toronto studio. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Is the mall dead or is the mall dying? Some malls are dead and some are dying and others are very much alive and, and finding new life uh, in, and new opportunities. I was reading that there was a retail study uh, from 2022 that saw more store openings than closures for the first time since 2016 in malls and that retail sales at malls grew more than 11% to something like $819 billion US. That's a lot of money that's being spent at the mall. Yes, that is a lot of money. I'm not terribly surprised to hear that statistic. I think one of the things coming out of of the pandemic and in recovery is that we're seeing an enormous amount of of innovation and entrepreneurship. And this idea that we have more stores opening than closing is a a really positive sign, but also a sign that, that we are experimenting, that we are trying new things. And malls, like cities, are dynamic places, and they have to continue to evolve to... So you think of the mall, and I think a lot of people think of this, it's, it's like out in the suburbs, um, and there's a giant parking lot that you go to, you park in the parking lot, you go in, uh, and and it, it feels like, I mean, we heard talking about that, like you're going back in a bit of a time machine. Why does that model not really work as much anymore? 
In many ways, the the model of the suburban mall that depends on the sort of the family or the individuals in their private automobiles driving and parking in that giant lot and going in and and going to whatever that anchor store is uh, and and other activities in the mall, movie, etc. It doesn't work as much anymore because the demographics around many of those suburban malls have changed quite dramatically. Um, and also, in some cases, we have transit systems and new types of malls and new investments in other spaces that are more more alluring than the than the traditional mall. And so malls, again, they have to adapt, they have to change, they have to understand. And I think we, we see this in, in a lot of exciting sort of commercial spaces, how uh, how new new changes are being made, whether it's pop-ups, whether it's uh, art activities and exhibits, whether it's introducing roller skating into the mall, uh, thinking about how to stay sort of current and vibrant. Okay, we'll go back to some of the other stuff, but where's the roller skating happening in the mall? The I don't ever remember roller skating in a mall. So uh, in London, Ontario, there was a mall that was on one of, you know, the sort of dying mall breed, and they introduced roller skating in the evening in the mall. And actually just yesterday, I was at uh, Union Station, and Union Station has roller skating this season. Do you roller skate through the mall? Like, is that what you, or is there like a designated uh, area where we're roller skating? In the mall in London, you're roller skating through the mall. There's a beautiful video of it. Wow. Tell me more about how the mall, you've hinted at this, but how the mall is changing to meet the changing communities around the mall? So one, a, couple, a couple of things I would say. One is malls are, are places and we're starting to look at, um, at the narrative of placemaking, of creating spaces, of animating spaces. Now, typically you might think of animating outdoor spaces, animating public spaces. Malls are not quite public. People might think they're public, but actually they're very much private spaces, but they can adapt to the kind of... Um, of, of ideas, of initiatives, of bringing people together that actually make them feel more like public spaces. How so? Benches, uh, food, art exhibits, rollerblading, uh, inviting people in not just to shop, but to do other things. Isn't the point of going to shop, though? Not for everyone. Part mm. of the point is the experience. It's the seeing other people and the people watching. And, and you need to have people at the mall to be able to, to do that part. Sometimes it's to test out, you know, to try out this new great uh, food or ice cream or cookie that is amazing to post on Instagram, right? If you have, if you have children, uh, <laughs> you've probably had to run with them to the pop-up to buy whatever, whatever thing is of the moment so that they, they too can, can share it and have it. But that's another uh, way in which malls are, incre- are, are learning to attract uh, new customers and build new customers. How did all of this change, or at the very least, the the place of the mall change during the pandemic? Well, during the pandemic and in in many Canadian cities, malls were closed entirely for for months on end. Um, And this was, you know, they, malls were, they, we thought that retail would be devastated. And you've just given a, a statistic that suggests that isn't the case. Mm. But what happened was we saw this acceleration in online shopping and increase acceleration of about a 10-year period over a one-year period. And everyone said, okay, we now see, you know, online shopping, e-commerce has now accelerated 10 years beyond where we thought it would be. And that's where it's going to stay. But we were totally wrong. <laughs> and this is why it was a a cyclical change and not a structural change. Because the assumption is, why do we need the mall when you can just shop right. from your couch in your bathrobe or your office while you're supposed to be working? Mm-hmm. Why do you need to go somewhere? Because the mall is an experience. And 
looking at thinking about how we turn them all into an experience, just like we turn the, the street into an experience, the park into an experience, our neighborhood. So the mall has become a place of experience. And in order to attract people, one has to make it desirable and sort of mimicking some of those other everyday activities, the serendipitous uh, meetings, things like that. You know, the previous uh, person spoke about running into his grandparents at the mall, uh, creating spaces, whether they're indoor or outdoor, public or private in a mall is, is very similar in this way, is around thinking about ways to bring people back together and people want to be together again. Uh, we, we see that in so many ways. I happened to be in a mall a couple of weeks ago and one of the stores that I noticed was, I mean, it was like augmented reality, virtual reality kind of store in a mall. Why would, why would something like that, that seems like, again, something that would not be in a shopping center. You go to a mall to buy things. You don't go to a mall to strap goggles on, which you could do at home. But is that what malls have to do to try to bring those sorts of different sorts of stores into the place so that people will, who are used to doing that outside, will come into that space? I do think we need to think about how, how malls or commercial spaces are thinking about, be, you know, beyond the beyond the store, beyond the, the store where you just go to buy the single good, but you create an experience, whether it's a virtual reality experience, an art exhibit, an escape room, mm. and you still have people walking through your private sort of mall when, you, when they come in for that, and they may stop and purchase something, they may uh, run into a friend, they may go out to eat after, and all of those things are, are activities that do happen. In, in malls. What happens when those anchor stores, and we heard about this earlier, the anchor stores like Nordstrom and the Bay disappear from the mall. They take up a lot of physical space. And when they're gone, there's a shuttered off area, which suggests that the end is coming for the whole place. So what, what replaces those anchor stores? That's a super tricky question. And one of the things that even before the, the, the most recent closure of anchors like, Nord, like Nordstrom in Canada, uh, mall owners and developers were thinking about how to make better use of the land on which their mall sits. And so maybe instead of that Nordstrom store at, at Yorkdale that's now totally shuttered, maybe what we'll end up seeing there is a high rise. And actually at Yorkdale, which is surrounded by thousands of parking spots, it is that sort of traditional suburban style mall. Uh, there are plans in the works to build a uh, many new buildings with apartments and offices uh, and to create a kind of mixed-use community there so that even without an anchor store, there will be a ready-made uh, group of, you know, set of people, a ready-made neighborhood to frequent and support that mall. Should some malls die, do you think? I mean, again, if there, th some things are being reinvented, but at the same time, we were talking, we were just on that tour, but about the dead malls. Should some malls go so that other things can be built in their place? Yes, I would say so. Some malls should, you know, whether perhaps if there's another opportunity for the land, if there is a community use, so instead of tearing the building down to adapting it, to repurposing it to a community space, to a roller skating uh, venue, um, but thinking about, you know, what are the what are the reasons why a mall would stay or go? And it's it's really a lot of it is its location, its demographics, and it's how we value that space and what else could go there. Where would teenagers go? Where would teenagers go? Teenagers love to go to the mall still. They might find another mall. They might go to the park. They're going to go to the <laughs> to park to walk around the park. Teenagers just go to the mall and it seems like they can, they, time can disappear because, and they may not even be shopping, but it's all of those things that you mentioned, the serendipity, running into your friends, being part of something larger in that space. Yes. Maybe teenagers will find another mall. Shauna, thank you very much. Thank you. Shauna Braille is an associate professor and director of... Uh, 
the Institute for Management and Innovation at the University of Toronto. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There is a long history to the shopping mall. Alexander Lang is a design critic, author of the book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Alexander, good morning to you. Hello. Where did the mall come from? Who is there somebody that created the mall? Indeed, there is. Um, a man named Victor Gruen, a Viennese architect, um, is considered the father of the shopping mall. Um, and he is the designer behind Southdale, which opened in Edina, Minnesota in 1956. What was the point of it at that point at that time? Well, Victor Gruen was looking at the American suburbs that um, you know started being built post-World War II, and he realized that you had houses and you had highways, but you had no space between the houses and highways for people to gather in. And so he really thought of the shopping mall as reproducing the old-fashioned Main Street or Town Square in the suburbs. And Toronto was talking a little bit about this in terms of how in part of this is the pandemic, but also just the way the communities have changed. How have our needs for the mall changed, do you think, since then? You know, I I think at a basic human level, the our need for the mall hasn't changed. Like we still need places to come together to, yes, do errands and shop, but also see our neighbors in uh, any sort of community. So I think what we're seeing changing is of what's going to draw people outside their houses and, you know, kind of what times of day, what are the patterns um, that people are going to the mall in, in terms of, you know, working that out with work and school and other things. You know, when, when the mall was built in 1956, it was mostly like women and children at home during the day. And that's not really how the world works anymore. Mm. As Shauna mentioned, I mean, these are private spaces, though. They're not public spaces, right? Right. Privately owned public space or, you know, private spaces. So they have their own rules and regulations. When you take a look at how they're changing, and again, Shauna hinted at this, the communities around these malls perhaps are evolving. You see malls being turned into neighborhoods. In Vancouver, the Oak Ridge Center is being developed into this sort of, you know, mini center with dozens of high-rise towers, homes for about 60 or 6,000 people, pardon me. Uh, Shauna was mentioning what could happen at the Yorkdale Mall in Toronto, where perhaps you have these huge parking lots and maybe you could build some housing in and around there so that a number of different needs are met. What has to happen to make mall neighborhoods, if I can call it that, feasible and functional? Well, in a lot of places, you have to change the zoning. Um, part of the allure of the suburbs originally was single-use zoning, so you'd have housing in one place and commercial development somewhere else. But now people are realizing that they don't actually want that. They want to be able to walk to shop. They want their kids to be able to bike to the mall and all of that. So you have to change the actual zoning in these locations to allow housing to be built on the mall parking lot, you know, office space to be built in the same location. Um, and so I think we're going to see a wave of kind of re-regulation and, and new thinking about what uses can happen adjacent to each other in the suburbs. What about the tension between, and 
there are main streets in, in, in all sorts of different neighborhoods, including downtown neighborhoods and suburbs as well. There's a real push coming out of the pandemic where people were buying online to shop local, not so that the malls wouldn't you know, be, be threatened by that, but that the small little community stores that they loved, the little bookstore, the notepaper store, the, 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 the clothing store in their neighborhood would survive as well. What sort of tension is there, do you think, between that shop local movement and a reinvention of the mall? I think the two things can be combined. I mean, if you look at one of the use uses that's going in in the place of department stores that is, have closed, a number of malls have created kind of food halls with marketplaces. And a lot of those food halls are filled um, with local food vendors because they want the mall to be more responsive to the local community. People are more sophisticated about food now. They don't just want, you know, chain restaurants. So I think the mall can easily accommodate local vendors and local entrepreneurs. And of course, like when the mall was young, there were many fewer chain stores. And so it would have been like a local shoe store. It would have been um, a local women's boutique in the mall. And so I think that's a relatively easy thing to retrofit. How has the mall as a space for teenagers changed? Well, I think that a lot of teenagers feel a lot less welcome at the mall now. Um, In the U.S., at least a number of malls have expanded or reiterated their uh, teen curfew policies or parental escort policies, which means that teens can't go to the mall on their own. So you have to go to the you have to go to the mall with your parents. You have to go to the mall with your parents after a certain time of day. Generally, those policies start at like 5 p.m. on the weekend. Sounds like a nightmare for teenagers. Can you imagine teenagers saying, yeah, we'll go to the mall, but I'm you know, you have to come with me, mom or dad. Right. It's like against the teenage nature. And I think that, you know, teenagers really crave independence and they need independence, but they don't necessarily quite have the wherewithal to, you know, have that independence on the streets. And so the mall historically has been this kind of like training wheels environment. You know, you're not threatened by cars. There's passive surveillance from shopkeepers. And I think it's really important to preserve that because there are so few paced Sorry, there's so few spaces where teenagers can be themselves. I mean, there are also places where perhaps teenagers wouldn't be welcome, maybe if they have, you know, a parent's uh, credit card or something like that. But there are malls that are that are very high end and targeted specifically on on the high end consumer. How does that change who is welcome in those spaces? I think. The teenagers probably wouldn't want to go to that type of mall. I think one of the great things about most typical malls is that if even if you only have five dollars, you can buy something and kind of, you know, participate in the fun of, you know, shopping with your friends, going to the food court with your friends. So if there's a mall that basically has a $20 plus buy-in, then I don't think teenagers are going to go there. Hmm. Um, but what I see more often is that malls will have you know, a designer end, a luxury end, but then they'll have another end of the mall um, with lower end stores like Claire's Accessories or Forever 21 or Hot Topic. And so even at malls that have very high end stores, there's still a range uh, of things to buy. This is the time of the year when people will be going to the mall who perhaps, maybe they love it or maybe they are hating it, but they just know that they're going to have to go uh, because it's the holiday season. They're going to be thinking about that space. In this conversation, what do you think that space is going to look like in future? What is the future of of the shopping mall? I think the 
future of the shopping mall is actually a lot less holiday dependent um, because the kinds of things that you're going to do at the mall, like going to get the latest interesting food or going to have the latest kind of fun experience are things that you're going to do all year round. It's going to have shopping, but shopping isn't going to be at the center of the mall experience. It's going to be more experiential overall. Um, but some of those experiences you won't be able to take home. Shauna talked about that idea of roller skating through the mall. I mean, I've read about some emptier malls having, I mean, they're turning it into pickle mall. So you, you play pickleball in the mall space. Is that yes. kind of the future? You say, yes, perhaps you've, you've seen or participated in this. Is that the future of those spaces? Um, you know, I I think pickleball is a trend. So I think it's an indicator of the type of thing that's going to happen in malls. But I don't think pickleball itself is forever. Um, but I think... That's another large- matter that we could get into, but we'll leave that yeah. aside. Yes. I think the larger idea of kind of active family fun, shall we say, is something that we're going to see in malls. So that is roller skating. Ice skating has been in malls traditionally. Climbing malls, trampoline parks, dirt bike tracks. Like there's so many things because once you get into an empty department store, you realize how big that space is and like how accommodating it can be of many different uses. And again, the hope is if you're doing all of that, maybe you'll leave and maybe you'll spend some money somewhere else. Yes. Well, that has always been, you know, the undercurrent of the mall. Do you have a favorite mall? Favorite mall. I really love North Park in Dallas, which I wrote about in my book, which is a mall that opened in 1965. And part of the mall is still the same architecture, the same floors, uh, the same walls as it has been in in 1965. And I just love the idea of being able to step back into that kind of time capsule. Alexandra, thank you very much. Thank you. Alexandra Lang is a design critic and author of the book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.